talk about uh, four contexts of discipleship, four contexts in which discipleship happens, four uh, necessary contexts for discipleship to happen. And as we as we kind of warming up toward a sort of an equipping time, I want to talk about um, these kind of lead into some practical things for us. But uh, Mark three thirteen through nineteen, and uh, I'm in the CSB. If you put it up there, I don't know if you're in process of doing that or not. Uh, <clears throat> you don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Uh, Mark three thirteen. Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve to he appointed the twelve to Simon. He gave the name Peter and to James, the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John. He gave the name Boanerges, which that is sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus. And Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your presence. We thank you right now that we can rest in Jesus after potentially crazy days for us. We rest in you and what Christ has done. He is our hope and our stay. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and be our guide, be our teacher. That you would open our eyes and open our ears, soften our hearts to your touch, that we might be shaped by you. Have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So 12 contexts, 12 contexts, four contexts of uh, discipleship. And this isn't meant to be uh, exhaustive, but I think it's meant to be instructive as to when we think about how are we called to follow Jesus What we're taking is the description of him calling the 12 apostles. And from that description, we're taking some prescriptive points. So from the description, so uh, there's a lot that the apostles did, a lot that they were, a lot that they did that is not for us to be and do, right? We are not receivers of divine revelation in the sense that the apostles were. We aren't going to add books to the New Testament because of that. Uh, we probably aren't going to go around casting out demons or, and doing some of the, the miraculous works that we see the apostles doing. Uh, that doesn't mean that God doesn't do miracles or he doesn't, there's no spiritual warfare, um, but that, that sort of operation, uh, we probably aren't going to be engaged in it. Uh, but before the apostles are called to be apostles, which apostle just means the sent one, in, in, the, in the New Testament, a good way to think about that uh, is that almost all translations only refer to the twelve as apostles. But the, the Greek word apostolos shows up describing other people. Um, so that there are big A apostles. This is this a helpful way to think about it. Capital A apostles, who are these dudes, uh, that are sent out by Jesus. And then there are little A apostles like Epaphroditus or someone who is sent out by who are sent out by churches, so they are there are those who are called messengers from churches. They're they're, they're described in, in different terms. So, but there are there's a sort of a classification for the, these capital A ones who are explicitly sent by Jesus because they've been with Jesus, and then there are the little A ones who are sent out by churches, congregations. 
Come in, kick that rabbit. So, Paul. Yeah. Calls himself an apostle. He has a divine revelation of Christ. Read Revelations. There's going to be part of the New Jerusalem. We'll be on the 12th. Is it the gates or the corners? Yeah. But is he part of the 12th? That's a good question. Yeah, so I've heard two things. One, uh, that Matthias is the 12th. Uh, I've heard the other one, which is intriguing, is that the uh, early church jumped the gun, which I don't know is necessarily true. They jumped the gun and that the 12th was actually supposed to be Paul um, because Jesus, Jesus appoints apostles. Uh, those, Jesus appoints capital A apostles, not uh, the church. So I, I, uh, that, that's my best shorthand. Beyond that, I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't know if I can push into it. But I... I Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He is he's commissioned by. Yeah, he's commissioned by the Lord Jesus. Uh, he's struck there at the Damascus Road. He's he's converted. He's and he's sent out as the apostle to the Gentiles. Now that the fact that he's defined as an apostle to the Gentiles kind of sets him not sets him apart, but sets him distinctly from the other apostles, because there in Revelation, it's uh, they're the. They're built on the foundation. The 12 apostles are on the foundation. And then the gates are the 12 tribes of Israel, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So um, not that that's necessarily significant, but it's a part of the conversation. Um, but, yeah. but he's definitely, definitely appointed and sent by Jesus and not by, um, not by churches in that instance. Now, later on, the apostle Paul is sent by churches. Like he's sent by the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, right? They pray and they send out he and Barnabas. And so there is a, uh, a commissioning. But, but apostle, apostle is really um, in the Latin. I forgot the Latin word for it. Uh, but it's, the Latin is the word we get missionary from. So that might confuse you more. Anyways, um, but where, where we are, uh, Mark's gospel is very uh, quick. So he, he jumps right in. He doesn't give us the birth narratives. He doesn't give us the, the great theological uh, spectrum and, and context that the Apostle John does. But the, the Apostle, I mean, that Mark just sort of says, and we're going, right? And, and the, this is the beginning of the gospel. And so he's moving rather quickly. He talks about John the Baptist briefly. Uh, he talks about Jesus's preaching ministry in chapter 1, driving out demons. And so all that to say that Jesus' ministry is mirrored or continues in the ministry of the apostles. Jesus teaches and casts out demons. He, he appoints and entrusts authority to the disciples who become apostles for them to teach and cast out demons so that there's a, a continuation of the ministry of Jesus and, and a multiplication of the ministry of Jesus in, the, in the, the apostles so that they are continuing in that way. Now, obviously, just like there are things that these apostles were and did that is distinct from us, there are things that Jesus is and did that are distinct from the apostles. So just because some of what he does is brought forth in the apostles, it doesn't mean that they die, uh, they die redemptive deaths, substitutionary atonement, right? That's Jesus' territory only. Okay, uh, so Jesus goes up the mountain and he summons those he wanted. So discipleship begins with the summons of Christ. But the first context, uh, the first context, before I ramble on trying to give you contexts about the contexts, uh, 
The, the first context of Christian discipleship is the context of a relationship with Jesus. You can't, it, it should, this is sort of uh, the duh one, right? You can't be a disciple of Jesus if you're not in relationship with Jesus. That there has to be a vital living relationship with the risen Lord Jesus in his spirit now. Um, so to be a disciple, yes, it means to be a learner. It means to be a pupil. It means to be one who comes alongside behind or I mean, comes behind and, and follows in the footsteps of the master. But unless there is a vital relationship, we can know everything we want to know. Uh, we, can, we can perform as many religious rites as we want to perform. But unless there is a, a renewed living relationship, then we are, we're, we've missed the very foundation of Christian discipleship, which is Jesus. So when Jesus says he went up the mountain and summoned them and they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles to be with him. That their first context, right? Their first context is to be with Jesus. So the first place that we live out our Christian life, our Christian discipleship, obviously, is in relationship, in nearness, communion with the Lord Jesus. Now, when you think about communion, sorry, my phone, watch it, weird. Uh, when you think about communion, you, you might think of the Lord's Supper, and that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. Um, but the way I'm using communion here is lived experience with Jesus of a, of a spiritual reality. So a, a lived out life that is rooted in a spiritual reality. A way to think about this is union and communion. Union is a spiritual reality that you are unioned to Jesus. You are spiritually connected to Christ. Our, uh, the Apostle Paul says in, to the Colossians in Colossians 3.3, 3, For we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Uh, in the Apostle Paul in uh, Ephesians 2, right? You were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, he has made us alive together with Christ. He has raised us with Christ. He seated us with Christ. It, that's, it's there in chapter 2. It's there in chapter 1 where we've, we're in Jesus. So there's all this idea that, that you, you, you are um, on the being level. If you want a big word to throw at your neighbors on the ontological level, the, the level of being that you are union to Jesus. And what that means, Christian, is that that should give us some courage that my connection to Jesus is not dependent upon my day in and day out experience. It is a spiritual reality that here is, I think, at least imaged in Jesus summoning the disciples who come to him, that there is a spiritual. The, the spiritual initiation is on the Lord's part where he brings us into relationship with himself by grace through faith. Right, Grace extends, faith uh, receives, and we, can, we are connected to Jesus. This is who you are. You've been buried with Christ in baptism. The old is gone, the new has come. Right, This is you have a new identity, and it is union with Jesus. And the union with Jesus is the fountain from which all of our blessings flow. It's the fountain from which our, our participation in Christ's death, our participation in Christ's resurrection, our participation one day in Christ's reign, that, that in the victory over sin, all these things are flowing from the spiritual vein that is union with Jesus. When I talk about communion, I'm talking about you being with Christ. 
that there is an experiential component to your Christian life where you are walking in the spirit. You're trying to keep in step with the spirit. You're in the word of God. You're praying to the, to the Lord. You're hearing from God through his word. You're, you're obeying him, that there is a communion with God that is experiential. It's one that you know and you experience. Now, some days it's like this. Some days it's like that. And some days it's like this. And, and y'all know what I'm talking about. And it might be like you, you're like this for a few months and it seems like the, the bottom drops out. Eric? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, they were bringing communion in. Yeah. And, and what I'm talking about with, with communion is, is um, an exper- like an experienced relationship. Now, our, the Lord's Supper is, a, is an image of our connection with Jesus. It's a, it's a visible picture of our, of our connection, our communion. That's why it's sometimes called communion. Um, but that... Communion in the way that I'm talking about right here is that sort of experienced relationship with Jesus. One that has its, in, in our experience, has its ebbs and its flows. Um, but the first context for Christian discipleship is relationship with Jesus. And that's something that, I mean, I know all you guys are here all the time, but it's an invitation, right? To, to really examine ourselves and say, am I in a vital relationship with the Lord Jesus? Or am I kind of jumping through hoops? Um, in looking in other places, but a vital relationship with Jesus that is um, rooted in flowing from a the reality of union. So, um, so he appoints them. He calls them to him that they would be with him. Um, <clears throat> he gave them authority to drive out demons, and and I'm so the uh, to send them out to preach and the authority to drive out demons. The second context of Christian discipleship. Uh, is a demon-infested world. Uh, and you don't have to say it that way, but you could just say simply the world. Uh, that you, There's no way for you to be a... This is, this is where we're going to maybe begin to press into things that might be a little bit foreign to us. Uh, that to be a Christian disciple means that you necessarily have to be eventually, at some point, sometime, in the world. Uh, it doesn't... You know, you could say you're in the world, you're not of the world... Right. But you are Jesus's person in the context of the world. Right. The disciples, they they were in the world. Uh, And so the the second context uh, for Christian discipleship lived relationship with the Lord is in the context of those who don't know him. Uh, And so that if we remove ourselves from the context of the world, i.e. a monk uh, or, you know, if you ever read the, the desert fathers who 
you know, some of the, those people that ran out into the desert, it, they did some crazy stuff out there. I'm not saying that they weren't really Christians, but I'm saying they weren't really being formed fully as disciples of Jesus if we completely uh, disengage ourselves from the context that he has placed us in. Uh, now, we have to, to do that well, to talk about that well, I would have to nuance, right, where, where Paul takes the, um, you know, Come out, come out from them and be separate. He applies that. So there's a, there's a separation that's needed from the world. And yet there's a, there's, a, um, there's a necessity of being in the world. Like we have to separate from the world's values. We have to separate from the world's worldview, how they see things, how they value things from the world's idols, from the world's treasures. And yet we have to be present in the, Lord to, in the world to do what the Lord has called us to do and to be. And so there's a sense in which, and, and if I could maybe press on it, uh, that as you are in the context of the world for the Lord's purposes, that you become more diligent in your com- pursuit of communion. As you are in the context of the world for the Lord's purposes, when you begin to see that I'm around the people that I'm around, I have this cussing neighbor. I don't. My neighbors are great. But you might have this cussing neighbor that's doing all this crazy stuff. But you are there on the Lord's promises and when you understand that you are where you are, and this leads into the, the third context, and it's these, so the number two and number three kind of bleed together in the sense that you're, you're in the world for the mission of, the, of Christ. So the, the four, third context would be the mission, that the context of Jesus' people, the context of Christian discipleship has to always be, has to always be in some sense on the Lord's mission because the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus is on the move, right? We sing songs about this and we, we love the imagery of it. Uh, the gates of hell won't stand against the marching on of the kingdom. So the kingdom is advancing. This is why when Paul talks about the implements of the spiritual war in which we are in, you know, we're called to stand firm, but all of our weaponry is is right. It's on the front and we have one implement of aggression, which is the word of God, which I think then there's prayer at the very end of it. Uh, we have no retreat. We have no turnaround. Right. So that there is a there's a sense in which the, the Christian life has to be lived out, not explicitly, not only, but it has to be lived out in the context of the world on mission, because sort of if you want to have your following an outline, um, because sub point number one, being in the context of the world on mission makes you, as I said a second ago, makes you more diligent in the pursuit of communion. What I mean by that? Well, if I'm out in the world and I'm and I'm I'm thinking, Lord, you have me here on your purposes. Right. Help me. You know, you wake up in the morning, and say, Lord, if there's someone I need to pray for, if there's someone I need to encourage if there's someone I need to share the gospel with or simply to share a kind word with, help me see those opportunities, then all of a sudden, from the very beginning of my day, my prayer life is different than, Lord, bless me, you know, let me have a good day, give me all the good parking spots, don't let me get in a wreck, don't, like whatever, all the other sort of things. But when I'm praying on mission, my prayers become a little bit more substantive. They become more, more sometimes even desperate. There is, a, there is a dependence upon the Lord in the context of because you're going to be pressed and you're going to be stretched and you're going to be confronted. And so there's a, that, that when the disciples go out, right, eventually in the Gospels, they, they are sent out on their own. 
They're sent out on their own. And they're, they're empowered. They're, they're, they've given authority. They've been given the, what they need to go on mission with for Jesus. Um, but there's a, there's a desperation that grows. Um, and not only is there... A de- so, uh, sub-point number one, um, follow Christ, you know, whatever. The, co- the second context is on mission with Jesus in the world. It makes you more diligent in pursuing communion. Subpoint number two. Oh, subpoint number two. I don't. I don't have any notes here. So. Um, but that if it makes you more diligent in communion, then that, that means that you grow. You grow in that context. What I mean by that is that you, if you're if you're more diligent, saying I'm re- I'm reading the Bible not just to gain some information, but I'm reading the Bible. For the Lord's work that day. Like I'm reading the Bible as the food I need to be on his work, on his mission. Then if that's the context in which I'm made as a disciple. Then if I remove myself from that context. Which is really easy for a pastor to do. Right? Thankfully today I had. uh, I, I encountered one guy that I'm not so sure about. Um, a waiter today. Like, I'm not so sure. Other than that, my day was filled with uh, people that I think are Christians, as far as I know, like you guys. Um, that's not bad, but for me, to, for me, right, it takes a very, a very intense level of intentionality to say, I'm going to be in the world today. I'm going to be in the world and not cloistered off in Christian, life, Christian land, talking to Christians all day. I love Christians. I am a Christian. You are my brothers and sisters. But I have, there's a different type of dependence upon Jesus when I'm having to engage with people who don't know him. There is a different, my prayer life is, it's hard to articulate. My prayer life is different. My scripture reading is different. And, and the fourth context is different as well. Um, that the fourth context of Christian discipleship is community. Is one another. So you see, they were, it was, they're never just sent on their own. They're sent together. The disciples are sent to, together. And, and, and if you want to kind of track this back to the first one, first context of being with the Lord, that Jesus, uh, there, there are only, there are less than a handful off the top of my head, less than a handful of times where Jesus interacts and teaches one disciple. Removed from the context of all the others, which is often how how I've learned Christian discipleship was one on one discipleship. That's not bad, obviously, but Jesus is always teaching the twelve. He's always teaching the three, Peter, James and John. He has he has sort of this more intense group. Uh, And so we are meant to be with Jesus individually, but we're meant to be with Jesus together. Uh, we learn together, we, and the, but we're also sent together. So that, um, and I forgot who said it at this point, but one of the greatest apologetics for the gospel, one of the greatest defenses for the gospel um, is Christian community. That we will be known by our love, that we would be a community of believers that are marked by the love of Jesus in our midst and for one another and for those that the Lord brings us in to encounter. So that you begin to put all those things together uh, and you think about how are, you know, if this is, this is, this is 
very early in the this is the third chapter of the Gospel of Mark, that the disciples are made disciples. They're made in the context of being with Jesus, being in the world, on mission with one another. And then you think about how the church normally makes disciples. How do we normally school people into following Jesus? Come be with Jesus, removed from the world, usually delegating mission work. We, we pay somebody else to do that. And then with one another. Uh, we we kind of empty out the, the heart of that oftentimes. This is just thinking of how I, I grew up. Right? I came to Jesus. Um, and I came to Jesus early in life and when I was 11 and kind of went astray. And then when, I, when, I, when the Lord convicted me and brought me back to himself, uh, there, there had to be a hard break with, with my, I mean, I was a teenager. So anyways, um, but that's how I was instructed, right? There had to be this physical removal from the world and from those, from those non-Christian people around me. Um, now, I'm not saying that that, in and of itself was bad, right? Um, what's the proverb? Bad company corrupts good morals, right? So if you get swallowed, what I, what I realized in that friend group, if I continue to engage them in the context in which we always engaged, which was always in parties, then it was not a spiritual healthy, spiritually healthy place for me. But I could still engage them. It was just in new contexts, New, the relationship was still there, but the context for me had to change in that season of my life. Now it would be different, right? Later on in my life, as I grew, uh, you could, I could, not that I, I haven't been to a party, don't worry, teenager party ever. Uh, but, but I could enter into that and it would not hold uh, the, the temptation for me that it once did, right? And that's by God's grace. Um, so, but there's a schooling that you have to leave all of that behind and you always have to be here. You always have to be around Christians. Uh, and there, so there's a mixture of health and danger in that. There's health in that saying you've got, there's, there has to be a pursuit of holiness. Jesus teaches us to teach one another, right? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. So that we have to teach one another to observe every, to obey Jesus. So we have to have that, you've got to break. You, you are a new creation. You, you have to have new rhythms. You have to have new contexts. You have to have new, uh, some new relationships. But when we tell people to fully sever themselves from the world, all we are doing is that we are discipling people out of the mission of Jesus. And so that when, once we disciple people out of the mission of Jesus, it becomes so much harder to disciple them into it. And so that, and I, and I know that's, there has to be, there has to be uh, nuance there because, you know, there has to be, you, the Lord is holy, you pursue holiness. Um, but again, to say you, you have to cut off all those old relationships. Now, if you begin to interact with those old relationships and it's starting to just lead you back into sin, right? Let's, we got we to we do some hard severing. But saying, where you once went and met somebody for a beer, why don't you go meet somebody for coffee, right? Or go come invite them over for a cookout at your house. You already have a baseline of relationship. You can already call them up, text them up, and they can come to your house. There's already, you already have relationship. You consider about where you, you consider someone who comes to faith when they're, when they're 25 years old. You consider the work life that they have, the work relationships they have, uh, and the, uh, the friend group relationships that they have. Just consider where they are. And God brings them out of that, brings them the faith. But all of a sudden, they, they are prime and ready for 
uh, connection with the world. That the relationship that's already have. Now consider that versus when, um, for, for example, I was, I was saved very early. I mean, like 11, I was baptized, came back to the Lord by his grace at 16. Um, <clears throat> and so by the time I was 25, well, let's say just 27, that's when I became a pastor. By the time I was 27 um, and say now, like it took intentional effort for me to find lost people to hang out with. My days and my nights and my calendar and my phone were full of Christians. Yeah, and that's it's good. And we should have a like there's I don't I'm not trying to downplay like the beauty. Like we want to be with each other and we want to hang out with each other. and We want to encourage one another. Um, and that's good. And, that, and that's and that's a good. I'm not don't please don't ever hear me. I'm saying I'm like complaining about this, that. But it's so easy to just to sort of live in our bubble and just to live in this. And um, and so. It takes an intentional now for us. It takes an intentional saying, all right, who, you know, who is it? How, who can I get to know? That's and, and, and some of us, we might be able to have a, a sort of a here's some list of family members or here's a list of, uh, you know, of neighbors or or whatever people I used to work with or people I currently work with that that I'm not so sure, you know, um, <clears throat> but. What the connection I want you to see is not only do we disciple people out of the mission field, but when we dis, when we disciple people into a um, an unbiblical picture of separation from the world, is that we are discipling people into a, into misshapen disciples. And what I mean by that is that if these are the four contexts of discipleship. Then when I remove myself from those con to, of being with Jesus, right? Number one is the umbrella under which all of the rest of them fall. So if I remove myself from being with Jesus in the middle two, right? With, we can be with Jesus together. And one day we're going to be with Jesus together forever. And it's going to be awesome. But we're praying that more people are going to be with us with Jesus forever because of what we're talking about right now. Um, and so when we, so again, it's not just for the sake of the mission, but it's for the sake of our own growth. Um, because again, if I'm praying differently and I'm reading differently and I'm studying differently and I'm more desperate in prayer and I'm, I'm having to go, you know, people are asking hard questions and I'm having to delve into the Bible, just an example. It's, it's, it shapes me differently than um, <clears throat> being, in, being removed from the world to the, to the extent that I'm just in this bubble all the time. Together, and for so often this has been uh, evangelical Christianity's mo, uh, right? You disciple people out, and you disciple people into church programs and and church events, and those things aren't bad. But when they become the sum end of our discipleship, then they've then they've ceased to be useful for the cause of discipleship, right? That. Um, the, the programs that we're launching or that we have are, are meant to be um, they're meant to be a trellis. And there's a there's a great book. I'm totally ripping this off of. So um, called Trellis and the Vine. You everybody know what a trellis is. It's like that wooden thing. Everybody. The first time I heard that word, I was like, I don't know. Um, everybody's like, yeah, I know what a trellis. Anyways. Uh, so a, so a trellis is this wooden thing that you that a vine would hang out. So maybe a, you might put it next to a rose bush or. Uh, yeah. Yeah, those, yeah, I was like, yeah, the, those things. So, so it's the the structure that provides a provides a place for the vine to hang up, a connect, and to to kind of blossom. Um, when you apply that to the church, 
our structure, our programs, our times, all of those sorts of our budget, our buildings, that's all trellis. Trellis isn't unimportant, but it is not ultimate. Right? The life is in the vine. The, li- the vine can die, and, the, and this happened in, in my parents' house. Uh, the life, the vine can die, and the trellis will stand. And then all of a sudden the trellis gets, you know, gets rotted and moldy, and then we, then we start worrying about the trellis. And too often churches, and this is broad brushstroke from a, from a 30,000 feet, too often churches wait till the trellis starts to rot to try to address the problems rather than saying we, we have to bring some life back to the root. The, it's the vine work. And the vine work is that, that you and I, right, who's, who does Jesus say is the vine? He's the vine. We're the branches. That, that our spiritual vitality is in the vine. And so we, we, you know, the, the trellis is meant to serve the growth of the vine. Um, and so, but, but we have to be about vine work, growing people up in the, um, in the image of Jesus. And a, one of the verses that's been rooted in my brain lately, um, and I shouted this at the deacons, not didn't shout it, but I said this to the deacons on the other night that um, I only shouted a little bit. <laughs> I did, I really didn't. Uh, but Galatians 4.19, where Paul, Paul talks about that he's uh, the, over these, these Galatians, over whom that he's, he's labored until Christ is formed in them. So there's a work. That's a, I mean, that's a pastoral heart, right? Seeing Jesus blossom in people. But that's vine work, seeing people grow up into the image of Jesus, to grow in that spiritual relationship with the Lord in a spirit, being able to come to God's word and feed for themselves. That doesn't just because you're able to come and get fed by the Lord from his word. It doesn't mean that you don't need corporate worship anymore. It just means that you're you're not fasting for six days and then eating spiritually. Um, there's this precious lady that his, uh, I don't know if she's Gloria. I don't know if you're listening, but she tried to call me a second ago and I couldn't answer, but, um, she, she called and we're going to, you know, I've mentioned her, I think last week she had called, she's been sick and she's not a member of the church. Just wanted somebody to pray for her. And she called me. What's today? Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday. I don't know. Um, but she called me and said she, and she's like, I just need some spiritual food. That's how she said it. So I came in and I opened up the word and we talked about scripture and I prayed, right? So that there is a sense that we get. So, but we should be able to come to the word. And I'm not saying that she's doing something wrong to say I need some help here. But, but we should be able to come to the word and say, God, feed me, right? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That we need to be uh, self-feeders. That the only, uh, if, if you want to take that imagery of a, of a person, the only persons that need consistent feeding are babies, right? Once we grow, we begin to be able to feed ourselves. Now, you don't want to push that analogy too far, but that does mean that we should be able to come to God's word and say, in the spirit of God, saying, give me, what I, give me today my daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, again, that doesn't exempt, say, oh, I, I don't need corporate worship anymore. I don't need the preaching of the word. That has a different function. But we need to be able to feed ourselves and to be with the Lord. And we're able, when we're able to be with the Lord in the world, uh, then we're going to be a, a different sort of Christian. And um, with, the, with the Lord in the world on mission is a different sort of Christian than one who is with the Lord um, sort of skimming over the top of the world, uh, not on mission. 
And, and so I'm, these are kind of abstract right now, but I'm just so that we need for us to fully develop in, as followers of Jesus. This isn't, a, again, this isn't an exhaustive list, but we need all of these things. We need, obviously, the root, the fountain is to be with the Lord. We need that relationship. But we also, we cannot remove ourselves from the world. What does Paul say to, uh, uh, this is always a good quip when someone says, you know, judge not lest you be judged. Where we're the scripture says that we're actually called to judge uh, in 1 Corinthians 5. But I want you to hear Paul's language. Um, so this is, he's talking about church discipline. He says uh, in verse 9, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral, immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. So he's saying, don't, when I wrote you about don't associate with sexually immoral people, I'm not talking about the people in the world. You're going to bump up against all, and today you know this, you're going to bump up against all sorts of sexually immoral people. All sorts of sin, sin is just bumping around everywhere. And the call isn't to not rub shoulders with sinners, right? Because that's what G, that's the mission, that Jesus did that. The people that he's telling you not to rub shoulders with, so to speak, verse 11, but I actually wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, a Christian who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. So that the, and this is, again, this is in the context of church discipline. I don't want to chase that rabbit. But he's saying, you, if you're going to remove, if you're not going to bump into sinful people who don't know Jesus, you've got to leave the world. And that's, he's telling the, of all people, the Corinthian Christians, that's not what I'm telling you to do. You're not supposed to leave the world. You're supposed to, to uh, the, anyways, church discipline, part of it is a disfellowshipping from those who live in unrepentant sin at some point. Um, so the, these four contexts, right? Be with Jesus, be in the world, on mission, with one another. So if I could kind of maybe camp on with one another, because I've spoken a lot longer than I intended to or realized I had, better said. It's like my first sermon. <laughs> my first sermon, I'm going to tell this story and make it all longer. Sorry. Uh, but my first sermon, I preached from Matthew 8, and I was thinking about this yesterday. Um, Matthew 8, 18 through 22, where Jesus says, Foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no to lay his head. And I got up in the pulpit, First Baptist Irmo, and I, like, I literally preached everything I knew. Anything I knew about Jesus and the Bible came out in that ser- sermon. And I got done, and uh, I know there was no clock or anything. I just preached. And I got, got done. I was like, oh, that was a lot quicker than I thought it was going to be. And everybody's like, and it was because it was 30 minutes long. It was 30 minutes of me just talking anything I could. And uh, they're like, no, it really wasn't that short. So, um, but, but that the, there is a, if I'm a different sort of Christian when I'm on mission in the world, we are a different sort of community when we are on, with Christ in the world on mission. Understand what I'm saying? That we are different together. Um, our relationships become, um, if you will, if you just take the analogy, forged in fire. Like our, we're learning to depend on one another and to lean on one another and to encourage one another 
in the context of the world. Now, Jesus, not, he doesn't just take the disciples and just leave them in the world, right? There are times where he says, let's come away and pray. You need to take a break. This is one of the reasons, this is, this is one of the, the things that's offered on Sunday morning worship. Come and take a break and praise the Lord. Just let it all hang, you know, let it be. Um, and then, then we'll go back out, right? Where we go from the church gathered to the church scattered. But we're a different sort of community uh, when we're on mission together. It changes our relationships. It cha- and, and it changes the way that we grow together. Um, so there's four, and again, this is just abstract. Um, as we kind of talk through these things on Wednesday nights, we'll press into what, what are you talking about for us. But I want you to have those ideas up and running, that, that Jesus leads his disciples. Um, he saves them, he rescues them, but he leads them into the world with times of refreshing. Whereas often our pattern is times of refreshing with blips of mission. And for Jesus and his, and his disciples, it, it seems to be kind of flipped in the other direction. So um, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again for your word, and we ask that you would do your will with it, that it would work effectually in us who believe, um, as your word tells us. It, it, it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Would your Holy Spirit come and uh, drive it deep into our hearts to bear fruit for your name? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.